You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from days of old, From ancient days, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. This is the word of the Lord. Now we'll turn turn over to Luke, Luke 2. We'll read verses 8 to 20. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there, there was with me an angel, a multitude with, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So Lord, our King, our God, we praise you this morning. That you've rescued us, that you've redeemed us, and we ask now, Um, As we take a moment to consider your word, um, to consider the words that you have very intentionally given to us, I pray that we would listen to them, your spirit would take them up and transform us and change us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Um, There is at the heart of what we celebrate and commemorate this morning, um, a fundamental call to a kind of humility that is very, very difficult and very, very strange in our world. Um, we, we have a kind of feigned humility in our age um, that, that is marked by a kind of ag- agnosticism over what is true. Uh, to be humble is to be someone who simply doesn't know what's going on. Uh, to be humble is someone who certainly can't make any sort of ethical claims or truth claims and certainly can't make any normative truth claims or ethical claims that might be applicable to everyone. That is in our age, a secular age, the definition of humility. 
um, to assert anything as universally true, to assert anything as um, a a kind of ethical norm that all people should conform to, um, is in our age called pride. It's arrogance. It's hubris. The Bible, and particularly Christmas, calls us to a totally different kind of humility. Um, The Bible begins by calling us to a form of humility that requires us to first acknowledge that if we're to understand anything about the way that the world is, if we're to understand even how we're to live in that world and function in that world, if we're to pursue um, any kind of normative good life, we have to look outside of ourselves to find it. So there is, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, this call to God's people and ultimately to all the nations of the earth that that if you want a good life, a good and righteous and just and holy and and full life, you can't just look within and kind of discover yourself. You can't just um, look within and your own desires and your own impulses, but rather you must come to God. You must submit to his word and trust that he knows a whole lot more than you and I do. And that's the the humility that the Bible first calls for. And that's hard in our age. I think it's probably hard in all ages. Uh, But in other ages, the the debate was largely over, do do you you go to this God or this God? Do you go to this code or this code in order to find what is true? In, in, In our age, it is a call to go outside of yourself, to humble yourself and to listen to somebody else the God of the universe. Now that humility is tough, but Christmas makes it way, way worse. You see, what Christmas comes and says is if you're going to understand how to live in the world, how to be a good mother or a good father, how to pursue righteousness and justice, if you're to do anything um, that is worthwhile and meaningful in this life, not only must you consult an ancient law given to us by God, but but, but no, you don't even know how to read that law rightly. And so you must be taught. Where must you go to be taught? To a baby. This is where you must come. I mean, this is the absurdity and the beauty of Christmas. In the most glorious and wonderful way imaginable, The God of the universe calls humanity to humble itself. It calls you and I to humble ourselves and not just listen to a book, an ancient book written, but to understand the meaning of this book, the center of this book, the fulfillment of this book. We must come to a child, this particular child whose birth we celebrate this morning. Um, I have made dear promises this morning, children somewhat associated with my household um, who are eagerly anticipating the rest of the day, and so I'm going to move quickly, I promise, um, to consider together the story of the shepherds and what it is that we can learn from them, and then two, um, what do we see about the nature and the character of Jesus here uh, in this story of the shepherds. Um, I want to begin by just helping us acknowledge the strangeness of this story. It may not be strange to you because you're used to driving past nativity scenes. You probably have a nativity scene. 
in your house. Um, you're used to seeing these draggled shepherds. If those of you who grew up in churches like mine that had a big giant Christmas service, um, you saw the shepherds. Uh, I got to play the little drummer boy who was a slow shepherd. I got there later than the other shepherds, but I got to play my drum. And that wasn't a real drum. They didn't trust me to play a real drum. But I'm kind of going down a rabbit trail, which I don't have time for this morning. Um, but, but if we just think for a second how central to the story of Jesus and the birth of Jesus these shepherds are, can we just stop for a moment and think, consider how odd that is? Like it's not a normal thing. Like, oh, obviously there are shepherds and then wizards from a far off land. Um, th- this story makes perfect sense. No, it's actually an incredibly strange story um, that the, the, the coming of God to, to redeem and rescue humanity, uh, the coming of the king who was promised um, would be heralded and declared first, first to shepherds. Um, there is a marvelous, marvelous book called The Solace of Open Spaces by Gretel Ehrlich. It's not a Christian book by any means, but, but it is um, the story of a, a writer from, the New, from New York, from writing for the New Yorker, um, who uh, her um, fiance dies um, and she moves to Wyoming um, to write a story initially, but then and just ends up staying in Wyoming um, and making her home among shepherds. And the whole book is essentially short essays, stories, reflections, observations of her time with shepherds. And if you would consider that the shepherds that she's encountering in Wyoming aren't that different from the shepherds you would have encountered. I mean, the clothing would have been different, um, uh, but aren't that different from the the shepherds that we find in this story. Um, I would commend to you that book. It's not a story of great, noble, intellectual virtue. Um, what you encounter with shepherds is um, not kind of the highest of society. What you encounter with shepherds is not the most respected. It's not the elite. It's not the ones who would know the times. It's not the ones respected by Roman culture. It's not the people that you would look to for validation to find out if something's true or not. It was people who lived out in the hills with sheep. You just wander around with sheep. Like all the time. And that's who Luke introduces us to first after Mary and Joseph. So what what are we to make of this? Well, the first thing you should take note of is how often the Bible speaks about shepherds. I mean, if you know the story of the Old Testament, if you're just arriving on the scene in Luke 2, um, the shepherds can be a shock to you. But, but if you know the whole of the Old Testament, if you know the, the way the story has unfolded over centuries leading up to this moment, you, you'd find that, that shepherds seem to play uh, a rather important role in the whole story that God's unfolding among the people of Israel. Moses himself is called the shepherd of Israel. David is called a shepherd of Israel um, and is a shepherd prior to being called and anointed as king. Ezekiel and a number of the prophets come look out at Israel and condemn its shepherds. Now, now when it can, he condemns its shepherds, what's interesting um, is that um, God always refers to the king's and the priests of Israel as 
Israel's shepherds. And so Ezekiel comes along, um, a number of other prophets come along and condemn those shepherds, condemn the kings and priests of Israel as being those who had misled the people, who had starved the people of the words of God, um, had not led the people of God into fruitfulness and righteousness, but rather had led them into idolatry um, and led them in ways that, that devoured the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. You see, throughout the scriptures, when you see a shepherd, the thing that you're supposed to know is here is a king. Here is a priest. Um, And yet, in this time, these king priests weren't well respected. Um, They lived out in the hills. They smelled bad. They were not the people you'd go to to figure out um, whether or not this COVID thing is real. Um, they're not the ones you would go to to figure out the best response to whatever it is that's happening in the day. But it's to shepherds we must go. It's to these shepherds that we must come and listen and learn. So I want to take a handful of observations about the shepherds and then consider what this tells us about the person of Jesus. So what happens? Well, as I'm sure is fairly common for a lot of you, you're out in the middle of nowhere, you have your sheep, things are nice and quiet, maybe kicked back, your boots in the air. Suddenly, suddenly an angel appears to you and declares to you that Christ the Lord, who is our Savior, has come. And then, as if that's not enough, then the sky is filled with the host of angels. Now, host, again, doesn't tell us exactly how many, but it means a lot. That's the translation. So there you are with your sheep. Suddenly, an angel appears and speaks to you, telling you that a Savior who is Christ the Lord's, so there's three things, Savior, Christ, and Lord has come. How has he come? He's come as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. That moment, you're trying to figure out what exactly was in the wine you drank earlier. And then, a multitude of heavenly hosts. Translation, a ton. Lot. They begin praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So first, they see. They see and they hear a word. A word of glory, a word of promise, a word about the rule of Christ. In other words, they hear the gospel. That the one who is king, the one who is Lord, the one who will reign over all the earth, the one who will destroy the enemies of God, the one who will die in the place of sinners, the one who will restore God's people to God. Um, This one has come. They hear this word and they see the glory of God declaring that word. So they hear the gospel. What do they do? 
Well, what would you do? They say in verse 15, let us go over to Bethlehem and see. See this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they have heard a word and they've seen a word and don't, don't, don't miss what happens next. They believed that word. They trusted that word. They trusted that word and they leave the hills and their sheep and they go to see this thing that has been declared to them. So they hear a word declared and believing that word, they go and they see. The story goes on to tell us that they go, they see this child, they see all the things um, that had been declared to them. They tell Mary and Joseph about it. And then what do they do? I love this part. They return. They go back to being shepherds. Um, Martin Luther makes a really big deal out of this, as he's prone to do. It is to say that they didn't see and behold the glory of the Lord. They didn't see and behold the Lord and Savior and then drop everything and, and disengage from their station and disengage from their calling. No, they return to go and fulfill the, the, the work that God had put in front of them. In other words, there is intrinsic, um, and if we're to listen to the shepherds, um, in the call of, uh, of Christmas, this call to come, to see, to believe, and then believing those things, those remarkable things, those, those glorious gospel things, to then go home and change diapers. Then to go home, vacuum. Go to work, hopefully not tomorrow, whenever your Christmas vacation ends. Work on spreadsheets and sales calls and coffee baristine. I use that as a verb. In other words, what changes in the coming of Jesus is not all of the normal things that God has called us to do and to be. You don't stop being a mother or a father or a husband or a wife. You don't stop um, being an accountant. You don't stop being a carpenter. You don't stop being a business owner. You don't stop um, being a teacher. Um, No, you go back into those things. The the glory of of all that, that, that culminates in all of history, in the coming of Jesus, this child king who conquers the dragon, the one who will be our savior, sends us right back into the mundane. In other words, he sends us back into all the places where real life is lived. This is actually one of the glories of the incarnation. It is not the the end of human joy and human work and human effort and human mundaneness. It is rather the blessing of all of it. The, the, The sanctification of all of it. 
As God has not saved us by taking us up to some disincarnate heaven. Rather, God himself has come in the flesh and walked among us and ate fish. And I think told good jokes and drank wine and traveled and cooked, cleaned and built stuff. So first, after the shepherds behold, hear and believe and then behold these marvelous good things, they go back to their sheep. But notice what's changed. Verse 20. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. But what changes about their vocation? It is now marked by worship. But what changes about the work that God sends us back into? What changes about the vocations that God sends us back into um, in the light of Christmas, in the light of going back into the world? in the light of the coming of Jesus, is that it is marked by glorifying and praising God in everything that we do. Again, the story of the salvation that has been brought to us at Christmas is not kind of a disembodied, sentimental departure from the mundane, from the boring, from the table, from the wine, from the work, from the building. Rather that all those things are now taken up by our God and declared holy, declared to belong to him. Such that as we go about the work that we've been called to, we glorify and we praise God forever and ever and ever. And don't miss what Mary's doing in the midst of all this. Verse 19. But Mary, observing all of these things happening, treasured them up, pondered them in her heart. She considered again and again and again the glory, the meaning, the wonder, the um, how, how does this, um, this coming about, this occurrence, this birth, these shepherds, um, the wizards that will come later, how do all of these things Um, bring about and show and demonstrate the law of God, the goodness of God, the creation of God, promises of God, judgments of God, the saving of God. That you behold these things, you ponder these things, you rethink the world in the light of these things, and then you get back to work. But work that is marked by worship. And last, what does all this tell us about the child? The most obvious thing is that here is the child who is the true shepherd. Um, the, the self-declared shepherds of Israel, the ones who lived in Jerusalem, the priests and the Herods, have been cast aside by the God of the universe. And he, in their place, God has called Jesus has sent Jesus to be the shepherd of his people. And so when we look at this Jesus, why does God send shepherds first to shout at us, this is who this Jesus is. He is the true shepherd, the true shepherd of my people. When we consider that he's a shepherd, 
um, you can't escape the, the weight of the Old Testament confession that the shepherd of Israel is the king of Israel. So we have the shepherd who makes peace. We have the king who comes to rule and to accomplish all that the Lord has promised. Third, the weight of the Old Testament testimony, particularly in Ezekiel, um, as it denounces most, most chiefly the priests of Israel, um, the, the ones given charge to both be the means of, uh, of the sacrifices that atoned for Israel's sins and, and to be the, the ones who stood and instructed the people um, uh, year after year after year in the ways of God and the law of God. Um, it is impossible to escape that this child is not only the shepherd who, who, who leads his people, he's not only the king who comes to rule and accomplish all that the Lord has promised, he also is the high priest, the true high priest who teaches us all the ways of God and and accomplishes the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And a number of scholars have pointed out two things. The, the odd language used to describe swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now that same phrase is actually used elsewhere in the Gospels to describe what the body of Jesus is wrapped in when it's laid in a tomb. So we have a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, foreshadowing that this baby would once again be wrapped in swaddling cloths and lied somewhere else, laid somewhere else for the forgiveness of our sins. Here in this text, he's laid in a manger. What do you do with a manger? You place grain in a manger. And then the animals, the sheep, they come to that manger and they eat that grain and there they find life. Here is the bread of life whose death will accomplish the forgiveness of our sins, whose very life gives us life. Worshipped by shepherds, considered and pondered by his mother, who is the shepherd, the king, the priest, who lays down his life for his sheep. Let's pray and prepare for communion.